Welcome to How to Study the Bible class through Immersion Discipleship School. This is session four called Observing the Bible. Now you'll remember over the last several sessions we talked about the authority of Scripture. We also talked about how to approach the Bible with a humble heart and a heart full of faith. And then finally, last session, we talked about preparation for Bible study, which was all about Bible study translations and the many Bible study helps that we need as we're gonna get going in looking up close and personal at Scripture. We also talked a little bit about how to jumpstart your devotional life and the different methods that you can use to do that. So I hope you've been encouraged so far. Right now, we wanna jump into what many call the inductive Bible study method, which simply goes like this, observe, interpret, and apply. And so this discussion is, is what we call observing the Bible. Now, to observe simply means this. It means to pay attention, to be attentive, to notice, or quite simply, it just means to see. If we want to look at the Bible in, in a way where it draws out questions in our heart and causes us to really hone down on, what we, uh, on, on meaning of Scripture, we have to be able to see well. And I think that seeing well or observing well is not just something we do for the Bible, I think it's connected to the way we live life. And so you, you'll find this, that uh, in order to have right conclusions, you have to have right questions. In order to have right questions, you have to be a person that's able to see into the text. And being a distracted culture, being distracted people, with everything that we have streaming to us and coming at us, that doesn't help us at all. But one of the prayers that I think we can pray, which is just a, a Bible verse from the Psalms, and I encourage you to do this, something I do for myself, is in Psalm 119, verse 18. And this is what the psalmist says. It's, he said, open my eyes that I might see wonderful things in your law. Open my eyes that I might see wonderful things in your law. The word law means instruction. The psalmist was praying this prayer. God, I want you to open my eyes. I want to be able to see. I want to see into your instruction that I could receive it and receive it well. I believe this is a prayer that we can pray, especially because we can become blind to the truths of Scripture. And that's something we don't want for our lives. That's something we don't want for any of us or anyone else. And so we need to be aware of our blinders or the colored spectacles that we might have as we're looking at Scripture. Now, I just want to say to you up front that there are, there are things that can happen as we approach Scripture. We can approach it uh, with kind of some glasses on, so to speak. We see the Scripture through a, a, a lens that we might have. And I just want to encourage you, as you approach the Bible, that you're able to approach it fresh every time. That's what I want to do. I want to come to the Bible and I want the Bible to read me and not just for me to read it. It's vital that I really grab a hold of times with the Lord and His Word, that they're fresh, that I'm constantly learning, allowing the Holy Spirit to teach me. The Bible says the Holy Spirit is the teacher and I want Him to teach me every time I open the Word. I don't want to have these these filters and these lenses for which I always see the word through. And I want to mention three different ways that I think can hinder us at times, not always, but they can hinder us as we come to the word because they, they provide for us those filters that I just mentioned. The first that I want to bring up is preconceived ideas. There are times where we can come to the word with preconceived ideas. Now this is about familiarity. Um, it makes us think that we already know what it means. It makes us kind of have this, uh, like I said, preconceived idea of what this means and uh, what I should believe about it and that I already understand it. Now, the reality is, is that there are times where we do understand certain scriptures. We might understand its context or the historicity of it. 
And that's fine, and that's very, very true. But there are other times where our familiarity will hold us back from the more that God wants to show us in those passages. I think there are many examples that I could bring up, but one of those examples is a passage where Jesus uh, talks about those who are rich. How hard is it for those who are rich to enter the kingdom of God? It's easier for someone, a camel, to go through the eye of a needle. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard this story before, but there's this um, legend, or so to speak, that uh, what that meant when Jesus said that was that essentially a person, a traveler who had a camel who would walk up to the wall of a city, basically to the gate. When they walked up to the gate and it was towards the end of the night, the gates weren't open. And so if the traveler wanted to get into the gate, they had to go through what's called the eye of the needle, which was a smaller door in the gate of the city. And they would essentially knock on it. There would be a watchman there or somebody there uh, to check who the travelers were that were going through the city late at night. And in order for a camel to get through the eye or the door of the needle, the needle was the gate, they had to take everything off of the camel and the camel had to stoop low in order to get into that specific door, which they called the, the eye of the needle. Now I've heard preachers and pastors say this before and when I begin to fact check whether or not this is what Jesus meant, I couldn't find any historical evidence to prove that this was true. And so I'm very glad that as a preacher or a pastor, I never shared this before, although I was tempted because it sounds like a great story. But if you've heard that from a pastor or a teacher of the word, and every time you read that verse, you're gonna have that visual in your mind. But the reality is, is that's not really true. That's not what Jesus meant when he said that. That's not what the Bible was trying to say. And so can you imagine, instead of coming to the word, and observing well and asking questions because you're making observations, well, this doesn't look right or that doesn't look right. You have this assumption that you know what it means already. And that happens to all of us. And we need to be aware of our preconceived ideas, whether it's from sermons that we've heard or teachers that we've listened to, or even things that we've studied and reading in commentaries or whatever. We wanna have our hearts freshly open to the word so that he can speak to us and be aware of our preconceived ideas. The second, I think, that can be a hindrance to us is our theological agenda. This can mean that we've learned certain theology or we have a, a bent or a bias towards this theology or that. It could be Calvinism and Arminianism. It could be a Pentecostal, which would be continuationists or cessationists, people that don't believe there are gifts of the Spirit. So we have a theological agenda. When we read 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, where Paul talks about the spiritual gifts, there are many commentaries that will start to talk about how these gifts are no longer for today before you can ever even have an opportunity to ask God about them, ask the Holy Spirit for them. Many commentaries I have in my own library uh, de-supernaturalize the Bible. They take away the ability for people to believe in and understand and consequently practice the spiritual gifts. Now, it's not my belief, but that's just what happens when you're reading commentaries or listening to teachers of the Word. We just need to be aware that we bring our theological agendas to the Bible, and we want God to teach us more than what we think we already know. Now, it's not, I'm not saying it's wrong to have theology. We want to have good theology, but we're always growing, and we're always increasing in our understanding of the word. And so we want to be aware of our theological biasms and our agendas that we bring. The third thing I want to mention to you is cultural issues. Cultural issues. We have 
of course, a context that we live in that the Bible readers and writers often did not have, and in many cases never had. For example, I'm a, I'm a white man who lives in middle to upper class white suburban America. And when I read things in scripture uh, about provision, for example, where they would ask God for provision, they maybe people in the Old Testament or the New Testament were praying a prayer, they were undergoing persecution, and they were ask, asking God to provide for them. That may be a whole lot different what they were asking for then in my context, let's say I lost my job, but I still have enough money and uh, a home and we have the ability to make it through the end of the year. And I'm crying out to God for provision, which is right. And I'm quoting verses that they were praying and they were writing and reading at that time. I just need to know there's a pretty massive difference between me asking God for food and me asking God for a really good job. It's not wrong for me to ask God for a really good job, but it's wrong for me to misunderstand that many in scripture, they didn't have their next meal at times or they didn't have a place to lay their head. And I might have all of those things. So I'm looking at provision as more and they were looking at provision as necessity. And I think it's very important if we're gonna interpret scripture, we have to observe it well and know we have a cultural difference. We might have a cultural difference from the Middle East and Western civilization. There's a lot of differences between the Middle East and Western civilization. The Western civilization is built on what you can see, touch, feel, taste, or think. It's very intellectual. And in the Middle East, they very much accept the idea of visions and dreams and that there's just something about touching God and the mystery of what we don't know. And over on this side of the world, we always want to know everything right down to the detail. And we don't want to allow for mystery. That's very much what this society is built on. And so, again, coming to Scripture, we need to realize that there are cultural issues that we may have between us, and it will help us as we seek to observe the Bible and then consequently interpret it and apply it as well. I was thinking about when, um, when you meet somebody, maybe it's at uh, a church function or maybe your job or wherever you are and you meet somebody for the first time. You go up and you shake their hand and you get their name and you have a little bit of small talk. I don't know if you like small talk or not, most don't, but you have a little bit of small talk and then you move on and you meet, you, you're talking to another person, maybe in your office or the church and they said, oh, I saw that you met so-and-so. And you said, oh yeah, yeah, I just met them. I just shook their hand, that was really great. And then they ask you to recall any details about your conversation or about that person. And you're just all of a sudden struck with this, oh, I can't really remember anything about them. I can't remember anything, but I probably wouldn't even remember their name unless you would have said it. And you realize that we don't observe well. I mean, even in those short interactions that we have with people and how hard it is to recall simple details at times about, uh, about an interaction like that. I think that happens to us all the time. If you're like me, you just kind of go about in your day and from point A to point B, and you fail to observe a lot of what's going on around you. Some people are really good at observing things in their life. I, I sometimes can be just in a hurry and going from point A to point B. And I think it's important to say, if we're gonna observe the Bible well, that we need to slow down and be able to look at things in our life and look at the scripture and really pay attention and be at peace so that we're seeing this for what it is and taking the proper time uh, to do so. And I think it's, a, it's, it's possible that observation is not only about the way we read, but it's also about the way that we live. 
Now, as we start to dive into observing the Bible, I want to present to you three different ways in which we observe the Bible. And the first one is what I call observing from a distance, observing from a distance. The process of observing the Bible starts with getting kind of a full scope of what it is that we're studying. Some people might say like a bird's eye view. We want to look at it from a distance and have kind of a, a, an understanding of this, the entirety of what it is that we are trying to study. For example, we could be reading like a passage in Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. And Jesus gives this really great parable um, of a king and his servant, and it's all about forgiveness. And it's my conviction after reading that, teaching on it, knowing that passage fairly well, that you need to read Matthew chapter 18 to understand verses 21 through 35. The preceding verses carry a lot of truth that lead up to and build up to verse 21. So if we don't have kind of a full scope, we're, we're not really going to ask the right questions about those verses because they're answered or the questions that we might have would be answered and even some brought up in the verses that precede it. And so I think we need to realize that observing from a distance means that in some cases we're going to have to read that chapter. In other cases, we're going to really need to read a few chapters um, at minimum, but it can't just be a, a passage. In the Old Testament, we're probably going to need to read the whole story. I think that's important. I, some preachers or pastors, the reason that they don't teach from the Old Testament is not because they're quote-unquote not Old Testament preachers, uh, but rather the Old Testament, in order to convey the truth of a, of a story or the life of someone, you really have to tell their whole story, and it takes a lot of time to distill this amount of, amount of information into a short sermon. And so it makes it a lot more difficult. But in the Old Testament, if you're going to study, let's say, like the life of David, or you're going to study a passage of David's life, there's going to be a lot in that story that you're going to want to discover. And so I would say to you that if you're going to look at that, you want to observe it well, you need to observe from the distance of the entire story. In the Gospels, you're probably going to need to read the whole chapter, uh, quite possibly the chapter in front and the chapter after. And in letters or the epistles, whether it's Paul's epistles or the other apostles, you're going to probably have to read a lot more than just that passage, but at least the, the chapter. And sometimes several chapters because the whole letter can really speak of the truth of that uh, passage or chapter that you're uh, reading. And so observing from a distance is basically where we start. We want to have a bird's eye view of what's going on in this text, in this passage, in this chapter. And that's how we first approach observation. The second way that we want to observe the Bible is what I call observing from up close. Now we're moving from a distance to up close. And after we have a sense uh, for the setting of our passage, we can begin to zero in using specific questions. This is where we might use what we call the interview questions. As we observe from up close, they're like uh, the questions that we would use would be who, what, where, and when, quite possibly. Uh, you don't have to use all of these questions. That's not the important part. This isn't just a mandate per se. This is just a way of investigating the scripture and observing well. But we're not going to use the question why, as you'll see next session, because the why question is really answered in the interpretation. And that's what we'll look at um, during our next lesson. It's not necessary um, to always get all of these questions in, in specific order or um, and have them done the, the same way that we did the time before. It's just a good guide that we can use as we, as we go about this. Now, I think that when you're, again, when you're learning how to observe the Bible, how to study the Bible, 
in observation, it's kind of like when you learn a sport for the first time. I, I've coached my son's uh, baseball team before, or at least being, being an assistant coach, and something that you see really quickly is the kids, when they first start out with the game of baseball, they don't really know how to play. And so it's really a, a successful game if you can somehow organize it enough to get through a few innings. But when the kids start out, you'll notice they'll get into the batter's box and they're all over the place. I mean, they just, they just have no clue what they're doing. And so they're trying to swing for the fences and they can't even hit the ball. There's no accuracy. Same with pitching. When they start pitching, I mean, they'll, throw, they'll hit everybody before they'll hit the mitt. And so what you need to teach them is you need to teach them form. And you're a little bit more rigid when you're teaching them the game. And it's not really about how fast they're doing it. It's not about how hard they're hitting the ball. It's not about getting home runs. It's really about accuracy. It's about form. If you can get your form down, then you can successfully play the game. But if you can't get your form down, then you won't be able to have any fluidity. You won't be able to be fluid in your pitching or in your batting or your fielding. And so that's what we work on with the kids. We work on their form. It's day in, day out, week in, week out, work on their form. And I think that studying the Bible is a lot like that in observation. It's like getting our form down, learning these kind of questions. You may not use these questions later, but if you don't know how to study the Bible and you're just starting out, you're learning to observe, this might be the first time or maybe it's a refresher course, you want to use these as you go along and then later on you won't have to write out who and what and where and when because you're going to automatically do it. I don't personally do this now, but I do it instinctively. I do it automatically and so I don't have to write out these categories, but I think if you're starting out, you should. Now I want to um, use a verse or a, sorry, a passage in Luke chapter 5, verse 17 through 26. I'm going to read it and then we'll go through it with these questions a little bit together. And this is what it says in verse 17. One day he, Jesus, was teaching and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem and the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. And some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were trying to bring him in and set him down in front of him. But not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles with his stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, Jesus said, friend, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But Jesus, aware of their reasonings, answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins have been forgiven you, or to say, Get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on the earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Get up and pick up your stretcher and go home. Immediately he got up before them and he picked up what, had been, what he had been lying on and he went home glorifying God. They were all struck with astonishment, of course they were, and they began glorifying God and they were filled with fear or an, an awe, a reverence for what God had done through Jesus. And they said, we have seen remarkable things today. Of course they said that, we would say that as well. Now, in staying true to these questions that we want to bring up in observing from close up, the first question would be, who? Who is the writer? We know, of course, that the writer is Luke. And we see in chapter one of the, the whole narrative of Luke, the whole gospel account, that he identifies himself. And we want to know, who is he writing to? And he says he's writing to a person named Theophilus. 
There's a lot of debate exactly who, uh, over exactly who that is, but we know that Luke is very aware that he's writing a detailed account so that they would have the exact truth. And he knows this is going to be distributed all over. And so these are just kind of facts, really. Who wrote it? Who did uh, he write it to? And this tells us a little bit about um, what's going on because we know who the readers are uh, as we're reading this. The second question that we can ask is where? Where did this take place? Well, we know that as far as geography is concerned, we have the idea of Galilee and Judea and all of that. But where was this specifically? It was in a home. There was basically a meeting that was happening and people were crowding into that meeting into a home. And there were Pharisees and everyone else that was there. Where do all the people come from? Well, the Bible says very clearly right here in this text that people came from villages in Galilee. They came from Judea and they came from Jerusalem. Now think about that for a second because it gives you a little bit of insight that people came from quite a distance to see Jesus. The minute people heard that Jesus was in town, the minute they heard he was in a home and he was basically conducting some kind of meeting, people began to travel. And they didn't have Cadillacs and airports and airplanes. They actually walked. And so they walked miles and miles basically because the word spread about Jesus being there. Obviously, they may have missed him. Some probably wanted to get there and they couldn't. And this gives us some insight as to what was going on. Now, the third question that we can ask is, is what? What are the main ideas expressed in this passage? I think one of the main ideas is that Jesus heals the sick. Jesus forgives sin. He forgives sinners. What does it mean that the power of the Lord was present to heal? This is a debated passage. Some people don't know what it means. Others speculate. I think it means that there were times where the anointing of God was so present, it was almost tangible, that the power of the Lord was present to, for him to perform healing. Luke makes that, de that detail very, very apparent. Why? Why would he do that? Well, it's, it's my assumption that he would make that detail because it was tangible to all. There was this, I don't know, electricity in the air. There was this sense of anointing that Jesus was going to do miracles in this house. And in fact, he did. What did the Pharisees and the teachers of the law uh, say about Jesus or say to Jesus or think that he was doing when he healed this person? Well, we see very clearly that they thought Jesus was a blasphemer because he said to the man that his sins were forgiven. He didn't heal him at first. He actually told him, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees and religious leaders right away thought you're a blasphemer because they didn't believe upon Jesus as their Messiah. And so we see this very clearly. Another way you could use the word what is what did it look like or take for the men to make the hole in the roof to lower their friend down? What, what did this look like? I mean... I don't know if you've ever thought about this story, but essentially here you have these guys who, instead of going to get a front row at the conference, they go and they get their sick friend because they want their sick friend to get healed. And when they come to the house, it's full and nobody's letting them in. And so there's one of them had to have this bright idea, like we're going to go up on top of the roof and we're going to open up tiles in the roof and we're going to let our friend down. They were desperate. They wanted their friend to get healed. They weren't willing to take no for an answer. And I, I think that's commendable faith. In fact, Jesus says that it's commendable faith. It's what he says. He says, seeing their faith, he forgave the man's sins and then he healed them. And that's, or healed him. And that's incredible because it wasn't necessarily the faith of the man on the stretcher. It was the faith of the man's friends. And so we have these 
kinds of things that we can observe. And I just, you can play out in your mind what it looked like for them to open up somebody's roof. Have you ever thought about someone opening up your roof and lowering someone down? I mean, that just would be a pretty crazy thing to see happen or to imagine happening today. It speaks of their desperation. It speaks of their quality of faith. It speaks of the quantity of their faith. It speaks of their love for their friend. These are some of the observations that I would probably make in looking at this passage. Now we've looked at uh, observing from a distance, we've looked at observing from up close, but the third observation or the way in which we observe the Bible is what I call observing from a microscope. After we've looked at these passages, we wanna go deeper. We want to go deeper than just initial observations. And I wanna share with you some focus points and things that you can kind of clue in on and key in on as you're reading scripture, especially as you're reading portions of scripture. And one of those things would be repeated words and phrases. Like recently I was studying uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. And as I was studying 1 Peter, I read the whole letter uh, several times. And I found the word suffering or some kind of alluded word to suffering over 15 times. I mean, he mentions suffering time and time and time again. And I think that's noteworthy. Peter's clearly talking to a people that are going through suffering. And you want to write that down as you're observing the Bible. Man, Peter is talking to a people that are suffering. It's not a guess. It's clearly something that he says again and again. So repeated words and phrases are things that we want to observe fairly well. Another thing that we, uh, the second thing that we want to look at when we're observing from a microscope is key words and phrases. We're looking for words that we don't always use. Words like repentance or words like baptism. These are key words or phrases or in the spirit or baptism with the Holy Spirit or really just any phrase with the spirit. We want to walking in the spirit. These kinds of phrases or these kinds of uh, key words are things that we want to study out. And so I think we have this assumption that we know what baptism means or what, what it is. And I think that we need to just come to a place where we realize maybe I don't fully know what this means or maybe I don't uh, know what I think I know. And we can write these words out for later use and saying, I want to study this more in detail to get to the interpretation, which we will in the next lesson. But key words and phrases would be the second thing as we're observing from a microscope. The third thing I want to bring to your attention is Old Testament quotations. The New Testament quotes the Old Testament over 80 times. And whenever the New Testament <coughs> quotes the Old Testament, which happens time and time again, we want to pay attention because there's a deeper understanding there. The new covenant, it doesn't just um, wash away the old covenant, it actually takes its place. But the old covenant has a lot of instruction and understanding for which the New Testament is, is based and set into context with. And so when the New Testament uh, of the Bible starts to quote Old Testament, we want to look at that. We want to go back to those Old Testament quotations and passages and say, what did, what did they mean then? And how are they bringing this concept or principle forward in this passage? It really helps us to understand that. We never want to ignore what maybe Jesus or the, one of the apostles is trying to say in bringing up an Old Testament uh, passage. The fourth thing is I want to bring to your attention is conditional statements. Notice when sentences say things like if or when. These are conditions. There might be a promise, but the promise is conditional. And it means that if you do this, God says, I will do that. And so we want to make sure that we're understanding those things rightly. These are conditional statements and they're really all over the scripture. The fifth thing we want to 
bring up, of course, is promises, commands, and warnings. As I just said to you, there are promises. Many of them are conditional, but some promises are what we might call an oath of God. God is going to fulfill it. It's a promise of Scripture. It's a promise of the Lord. And there are other things like commands. These aren't suggestions. These aren't if we feel like it. These aren't um, some for some and not for others. This is every generation, every age, every stage. The commands of the Lord are, tr- are, tr- are true for all of us. And then we look at the warnings. We need the warnings of Scripture. Warnings keep us from the bad and they keep us in the good. And we want to make sure that those warnings are heeded because God wanted us to know things specifically for our benefit. So we look at warnings in Scripture, these imperatives that are necessary for all of us. The sixth and final thing as we're observing from a microscope I want to bring your attention to is questions and answers. I think it's kind of amazing that, for example, people ask Jesus questions quite a bit. He didn't directly answer many of them. I think, in, in fact, he only answered a handful, three to five questions that Jesus was asked, did he even answer? But Jesus also asks people questions all the time. He asked the, he asked the uh, lame man in John chapter five, who was sitting at the pool of Bethesda, he said, do you want to be well? Seems like a unnecessary question. In John chapter 21, Jesus asked Peter after he had died and he had rose, rose again from the grave and he's basically having breakfast with the disciples. He looks to Peter and says, do you love me? Peter had betrayed him and he felt a sense of shame. And he doesn't just ask him once or twice, but he asked Peter three times, do you love me? And Jesus asked these questions um, from the disciples. Sometimes he'll say to them, why are you afraid? They're afraid because they think they're going to die. Jesus continues to ask these questions. And I find these kinds of questions from the Son of God something to be very important and not just to brush over. As we're observing the Bible and we're writing this stuff out, we want to write down those questions. What did Jesus mean? Why did he ask an unnecessary question? What was he really getting at? Because the implication is that there's something deeper there. And we want to understand that deeper reality from the question that's being asked. So we're observing from up close. We're observing uh, from a distance, sorry, observing from a distance, observing from up close, and we're observing from a microscope. And I think the key in studying the Bible is really found in the skill of observing the Bible well. You can only study what you can see, and you can only ask questions based on what you see. And so we want to do this together, and I want to encourage you to practice this in your devotions. Practice the skill of observation. It will help you to ask the right questions as we get to our lesson on interpretation. So I want to encourage you to do this and to do this well. If you guys want to do this further in your groups, whether you're in a group right now or you're just watching this yourself, you can continue this. Luke chapter 19, verse 1 through 10 is a good place to observe Scripture and practice this skill. Another place to do it would be James chapter 1. Just use the whole chapter and you'll really come to a place of of multiple observations that will help you and really start to ask the question of what does this mean, which leads to our our further lesson that we'll get to um, next session. But let me pray for you that God would do the very thing that I was telling you about in Psalm 119 as we would pray this prayer over our our lives. And the psalmist said, open my eyes that I might see wonderful things in your law and in your instruction. I want to pray this over us as we close our session today. Father, I thank you for, for your word. I thank you for helping us to understand your word. That's what we want. We want to understand your word. We want to know what it means and we want to live it out. 
And I pray, God, as we've been looking at observation today, I pray, Lord, that you would give us the skill of observing. Maybe we're not good at that. Maybe we find ourselves in a place where we don't observe well and we just kind of brush over things. That's okay. But I pray, God, that you would teach us, you would instruct us, and you would help us to observe the passages well, and you would lead us to the right questions. And that as we ask you those questions, we would find new interpretation, we would find new, uh, new things in the scripture that would become important to our lives. We want to go deeper. And so I just pray for all of my friends that are watching this, Lord, that every one of them would go deeper. Let us just go into these waters and to go deeper than we've ever gone before. We thank you for your word. We ask you to help us understand it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you guys. I look forward to our next lesson in how to study the Bible.